0: Good morning, and if you like my shirt, I got it in Italy, so you can't buy it here, so I just thought I'd I decided it looked really fallish, and it's time for fall, is it not? Oh my gosh, so so I'm really excited. It is our first um, official week having been in the workbook now and gone through the lesson. Um, we get to just jump right into the scripture. And so I'm excited that we are um, starting off um, with the scripture this morning. And so we're kicking off this study, um, just like Jody talked to us last week when she walked us through um, the study of James and how encouraging and inspiring that was, just to hear so much about what James went through and walked through. And Jody talked to us about the plumb line that James... Is similar to. James talks to us about genuine faith and how it is this plumb line where we can compare the way that our faith should look like in our own lives. And so um, before we can get into this study each week of genuine faith being lived down our everyday lives, I thought it would be kind of important to define faith before we get started. So, um, the biblic, I mean excuse me, the dictionary definition of faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Complete trust. So, biblical faith then, it's often defined as what we read in Hebrews 11:1 that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that's beautiful, but I feel like we could have something just a little more practical for us to go by. And actually, I was scrolling through Facebook one day, and as we do, and I saw a post from Tim Keller, my favorite author and theologian, and he had this very um, direct and simple definition on his Facebook page. He says, faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out, trusting, and believing what truth is despite how you feel. Isn't that great? Living out, trusting, and believing truth. So in other words, I would say that faith is believing God and acting like it. It's just simple as that. Faith is believing God and acting like it. Genuine faith either trusts God or it doesn't. You know, faith is a beautiful thing. We always talk about just this beautiful picture of faith. There's a chapter in Hebrews dedicated to faith. There are stories of faith all through the Bible, but it's often difficult to practically live out in our daily lives because it's one thing to believe right? But then it's another thing to really act on that belief. And when James was writing this letter, he understood that because he was writing it to a new group of Christians. They were not quite mature Christians yet because as Jody said, he wrote it around 44 to 47 AD. And if you think about it, Jesus has just been there and just left. And so there are no mature Christians for him to write to. They are all baby Christians. And so as he is writing this book, he is not writing um, to chastise them or to tell them that they have an inauthentic faith. He's writing to encourage new Christians, to encourage them into maturity. And so that is why he gives this plumb line of what genuine faith is supposed to look like. And so as we go through this book, I want you to think about that, that he's writing to these Christians who are just figuring out what it looks like to be a Christ follower. So let's see what James says. Let's look at James 1, 1 through 4. I am going to be in the ESV. I love that Jen Wilkin uses it. I think I'm one of the only ones on our teaching team that uses it, but grace for all of us. So, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how did you feel knowing that we're going to talk about faith? And the very first thing that James brings up is, so how does your faith look like when you're suffering? That's awfully presumptuous of James to say this first thing. Did y'all know that's why our coffee was late this morning? We wanted to see how you were doing in a trial. And I would like to say that while you were kind, I saw your hearts. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That really wasn't on purpose, but it was funny. So um, so James writes and says, how is your faith when you are suffering? And to me, it would have been a much easier question if he would have just said um, that genuine faith can be defined as how many posts you share on social media, or how many times you've gone to church this week. Like, those are things I can do. I will even invite you into my home and cook you dinner to show you that I have a genuine faith. But that's not what James is saying. James knows better, because he knows that in our everyday lives, we will have trial And suffering. And so James is saying this to open up his letter. He's saying, genuine faith will persevere in trial. Genuine faith perseveres in trial. Can you say that about your faith? You know, I asked that question to myself, and I began to think through some of the trials that I have experienced. And I was just going through this thinking, well, James is talking about these things, and I think we should really have a case study to go through to really practically apply this. So I brought a case study, and it's one of my own trials. So about 16, over 16 years ago, um, I moved to Dallas because I unexpectedly found myself going through a divorce at the ripe old age of 23. And if y'all can do math, you now know my decade birthday. So I moved here not having a job, not knowing what to do, um, because my then-husband at the time, the one I married when I was younger, um, we had been married just over a year, and he um, came home and said that he realized marriage was a mistake for him because he had had this basically other secret life that no one really knew about, a life of sex addiction. And the only people that knew about it were him and those that he engaged with, more or less. And so he realized that that was what fed him, and that he realized marriage was a mistake, and he said, I don't love you, I don't want to grow old with you, I don't want to have kids with you, and less than 30 days later, we were legally divorced. And I packed up my stuff, and I moved to Dallas with no plan. So I vividly remember crying out to God and saying, God, why? God, what are you doing? Because I'm, God, I'm a Christian. Aren't I exempt from things like this? God, I married a Christian. So if he's a Christian, shouldn't he want to work things out? Shouldn't he want to pursue marriage, pursue healing? You see, I grew up a really good Christian, and by really good, I mean my behavior was fantastic. (laughs) And I did not feel like I was at a place where I could go back to my parents' church and stand in front of all of them and admit moral defeat. I wasn't sure where to turn. And with that knowledge and the need to basically start over, I moved to Dallas, I changed my name back to my maiden name, And I was ready to start over, and so I started the process, I found a place to live, I started doing job interviews, and everything kind of came to a head. I began to realize the extent of my trial when I was sitting in an interview, and at the end of the interview, the man who was interviewing, he put two pieces of paper in front of me, and he said, so which name would you like to go by? And confused, I was like, what? And so I took the pieces of paper and looked, and You see, I had made my resume while I was still married, and so my resume had my married name on it. But I moved to Dallas and made a cover letter, which was appropriate 20 years ago, and it had my maiden name on it. Not even my name was enough to get me through a day. Everything that I had relied on for comfort, for getting through the day, Was God. All I had left was God. All I had left was my faith in Him, and I wasn't even sure my faith was genuine, let alone enough to persevere. Have you ever felt that way? Where the things that are so close to you have been removed from your life. Maybe it was that job that you had worked at for 20 years and then they sold to another company. Maybe you said the words, at least I have my health, or I thought so. I'm sure this room is full of stories of loved ones who were everything to us that we lost. Or have you ever just had to give up your name? We all have these stories, and we wonder if we have enough to get through them. And here's James writing this letter. And he says, this is what genuine faith looks like. It perseveres in a trial. And so the first thing I want to do is laugh at him and go, really? And he says, yeah. And he gives us these three ways that we can persevere. And so those are the three things I'm going to go, with, go through with you today. The three ways that your genuine faith perseveres in a trial, they're simple. It's to count to ask and to stand, to count, to ask, and to stand. And so I'm going to take you on a journey, and we're going to walk through my story. (laughs) There will be lots of things not to do, but we're going to do this together and see what it really looks like when genuine faith perseveres in a trial. So the first thing James says is um, to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So let's break that down a little bit. You have already done this in your homework, so we won't spend a lot of time. But to count it all joy, some um, translations say consider. I prefer count because count sounds like numbers. And I love numbers because they're safe and they don't have feelings. You always have the right answer, they're not subjective. And so to me, um, when I hear count it all joy, I picture the way we used to reconcile our bank accounts back in the day before we had instant online access, Some of you are nodding your head. If you have never done that, maybe you took a freshman accounting class when you learned debits and credits. But what I picture for debits and credits, I picture this check register. And you see over on the right, um, the balance is going, and you see the debits and credits. Now my checkbook always had a lot more debits than credits. But what James is saying that when you have joy, when you are in a trial, you can go ahead and go to the credit column and say, I'm going to put a joy in that column. You can go ahead and put it in the credit column because right now this trial is a debit on your life. You are being spent for this trial. That is a big purchase you have made because you are being spent. But James is reminding us, count it joy. This trial is going to have something in the credit column for you. And it's probably gonna be a pretty big credit. You won't experience that now, but I promise you it's coming. You see, count it all joy. Now, joy, there's another word we need to define. Joy is a word we throw out a lot. Um, especially joy is throughout the Bible. Um, our author, Jen Wilkins, she defines joy as an emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. An emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Now, I can tell you, I have a very strong emotion about possessing a celebratory piece of chocolate cake after I finish here. That is a very strong emotion that I have about the idea of possessing that chocolate cake. But I can promise you that when I get that cake, I'm going to eat it. And that will give me joy at the time, but after that cake is gone, my joy has gone right along with it. Now, I could get another piece of cake, but I can guarantee, what do you think is going to happen again? I'm going to eat the cake. Now, you see, that's not the kind of joy that James is talking about here, and I think we all know that. I think the kind of joy that James is talking about is when we can attach our joy to something permanent, something eternal. It's part of life, right? It's part of being a human, to have love and to place our hope and our joys into things all around us. To place our joy into having an incredible job that pays well. To place joy in financial security or in being in relationship with someone. These are all things we place our joy in. But those are circumstantial things. Those are circumstantial joys. Because when a trial comes along, if you think about most of the trials in your life, most likely there was something being removed from your life or it wouldn't have hurt so bad. And then when we, we realized that that thing is being removed from our lives, we realized we attached our joy to something that's going to waste away. And when that thing wastes away, then we waste away right along with it. When I was going through my divorce, I had joy attached to having a husband to being married. And when I lost those, my joy went right along with it. Ladies, the only thing in our lives that is not wasting away is the work that God the Father is doing of God the Father, through the work of his Son, Jesus Christ on the cross, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, those are the things that are eternal that we can depend on. And so James is telling us that genuine faith can count a trial as joy because there's a testing coming. That testing is producing steadfastness, and that steadfastness will make us perfect and complete. Now for me, what I, I experienced an opportunity to count things as joy one time, lots of times, but in particular. So my mom calls me, and being the wise, mature Christian she is, she said, "Amy, I just know that God is going to use this." Is that what I wanted to hear?" I was sad. I was rejected. I was hurting. I didn't want to be the girl or have the story that God was going to use someday. I didn't want to be the one who had my rejection and my hurt splayed out for everyone to gawk at and to speculate about. And you can't tell me that you don't feel the same way. I didn't want to be that person. And so my response to her, when she said, God is going to use this, I said, I don't care. But you see, my mom, she was years ahead of me and she knew something that I was not ready to know. She was ahead of me in maturity and steadfastness. And she could say those things to me because she had experienced them herself, her own trials, her own suffering, her own testing and being made complete and perfect. And she knew that was coming for me. And so when I couldn't see straight enough to see what God was doing in his great and loving redemptive work, she did for me. Now let me remind you a very important truth that God does not cause evil in order for us to somehow turn our faces to him. God does not wish sin and evil in our world, but his power is beyond sin and evil and his power and in his love, he can take an evil situation and redeem it back to his glory. And so my mom knew that day was coming and I can look in the, around this room, and I can see stories of trials. I can look in the faces of many of you and know with confidence the maturity and the steadfastness that God has brought to your lives. Because I've heard your stories, and they have encouraged me in my own walk. And so we must look around and see, is there someone who needs me to show them that joy is coming? Is there someone behind you that you can encourage when they are in a trial and can't do it on their own? Can you point someone else to the joy that will be made complete? Or if you can't decide for yourself right now, is there someone you can look to to help you understand this? Because they know what's coming. Look what James says in verses three and four. He says, For you know... That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So see, the testing of our faith leads to steadfastness. The testing here means it's not like a test you have to pass. It's more like when gold is being refined. It's the same word, this testing that's used in 1 Peter 1, 7, when it says... um, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the steadfastness of your faith, more precious than gold. You see, when you heat up gold and you're testing the genuineness of gold, everything else burns away except the gold and you have pure gold. And so a trial, it's saying that it is the testing of your faith. It's not God giving you a test. It's making your faith mature and complete, removing all the impurities from it. For me, those impurities looked like attaching my joy to circumstances. It looked like trusting myself more than God. And those are the things that he began to remove from my life through the trial. And then I began to experience steadfastness. But you see, the only way to get through a fire like that is to lean on one who is greater You see, once all of those impurities had been removed for me, I learned to focus on the one who was greater than me in every aspect of my life. It wasn't just a hang on for dear life with white knuckles, although it felt that way a lot of the time. It was an active faith. What it looked like for me was waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, I don't think I can get out of bed. Can you please help me? Lord, I'm not sure that I can pick an appropriate outfit today. Can you just show me what I'm supposed to wear? Lord, I've got to get to work and I cannot cry on my way to work or I'll have a car wreck. So can you please stop the tears long enough for me to get to work? It was taking everything in me and laying it all on the Lord. Because genuine faith either trusts him or it doesn't. And so those baby steps turned into steadfastness, and then steadfastness took its course, and I began to experience maturity and completion. And so genuine faith perseveres by counting it all joy. So the second thing James James says to ask, James says to ask, Look at James, um, look at verses five and six. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So genuine faith perseveres in trial by asking for wisdom. So much, um, James loves talking about wisdom. He loves it so much that he talks about it again in chapter three, but this, Faith. Specific, I mean, this type of wisdom is actually wisdom that you need for a trial. He's saying if you lack wisdom to get through this trial, you should ask God. Now, you know this is like when your mom says um, you should really make your bed, and what she means is make your bed. This verb is when he says. Um, Let him ask for wisdom. This is actually an active imperative verb phrase. If you were here and you played trivia on women's night, you know that we learned the four categories of sentences. We talked about an imperative. This is a command. James is actually, he's not saying let him ask. He's saying, ask for wisdom. You're going to need it. Now, why would he say right before this that you're lacking in nothing, that you will be, it says, The same word, lacking, you will be lacking in nothing if any of you lacks wisdom. Didn't he just say we would be lacking in nothing? And I think James knows that maturity and completion will not come until later. That's going to come. But the fact is, right now, you need wisdom to get through this trial right now. And so if you are not going through a trial right now, this is the time to learn about wisdom. And if you are going through a trial right now, this is the time to learn about wisdom. James is saying, ask. But let's clarify, this is not a request for knowledge, okay? The knowledge and wisdom are very different. You know, in, um, I've heard a saying about knowledge and wisdom, I do not know to whom it needs to be credited to, but the saying goes that knowledge knows how to take things apart, Wisdom knows how to put them back together. Okay, that knowledge knows how to take things apart. Wisdom knows how to put them back together. Wisdom is the right use of your knowledge. So a very basic example is um, my daughter is seven, and she dresses herself, and she's very adamant about it. Knowledge is me saying, Kate, you need to wear shorts, today in a short sleeve t-shirt because it's hot outside. Wisdom is when she can look out the window and see that it's hot and decide for herself what to wear without me telling her. And now, if y'all think, I love fashion, you need to meet this kid. Because she tells me all the time, Mommy, don't put your style on top of mine, please. (laughs) And I'm not sure that her style is really that wise, but I do know a trial is coming. So... Why do we need wisdom in a trial? Why? Why do we need wisdom in a trial? I would say that our go-to is always to ask for knowledge. Lord, give me what I need so that I can get through this effectively. Lord, tell me the things I need to know so that I can live through this difficult time. You see, we could ask for a lot of things. We could ask for grace, we could ask for strength, but James says, ask for wisdom. He tells us to ask for wisdom, godly wisdom, so that we do not waste the opportunities in front of us where God is trying to mature us and where we can join him in his work. We need wisdom to know where we can join the Lord. You see, knowledge was um, me asking the Lord for for information. Lord, I don't know what to wear. Lord, I don't know how to get through today. Lord, give me this information to get by. Wisdom came when I was sitting across from a woman, a girl my age, talking to her about a divorce that she had just gone through. And I didn't have to ask the Lord for step-by-step instructions in this conversation with her. Wisdom came when I could have this conversation and love her where she was. Because of what I had experienced, I had been changed inside. I had experienced a new level of compassion and understanding that I could never have before. And so when I sat down with someone to have coffee, it wasn't a, oh my gosh, Lord, what am I going to say? It was a, I get it, and let me tell you about Jesus. Wisdom is taking knowledge and making the right decisions. Wisdom is joining God in His work. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is an invitation. Knowledge was knowing that I needed grace and compassion. Wisdom was the deep felt emotion in my soul of how to love someone who needed understanding. And so wisdom is seeking the Lord and putting utter dependence on him, knowing that he is removing the impurities from your life, that he's slowly taking them away. And wisdom is knowing that when you ask, he will do it. He wants to give you his godly wisdom. So do you need to ask for it? Is there a place that you need to join him? Genuine faith perseveres in trial by asking for wisdom. So the third thing James tells us is how we practically get through this. How do we practically get through a trial? And he says, stand. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, another translation says, blessed is the man who perseveres. See, genuine faith perseveres. So blessed is the one who perseveres in trial. So perseveres, this word, the Greek word is actually hupomenia. Hupo meaning hyper and minia meaning stand. Persevere means to hyperstand. Not just stand, but hyperstand. So when trials come to you, you hyperstand. What were you doing before the trial came? Were you reading your Bible? Were you going to church? Were you loving your neighbor? Keep doing those things. Don't stop. Just don't stop. Hyperstand where you are. If you retreat and you run from the joy, if you run from the ask for wisdom, there's a chance that those impurities that are still in there after this trial, that those impurities won't be refined and removed. And if they're still in there, then there's a chance that this trial will cause bitterness, will cause you, um, for your character to be misshapen. And for the first few months after my divorce, that was exactly what it looked like. I was seeking acceptance and satisfaction in any place but the Lord. And then a neighbor invited me to church. And I said, that's sweet, but I don't think you know me. I mean, I grew up in the church. And he said, but you're not going. I was like, "Mm." so I started going. And so when I learned... God was doing something, and I began to hyperstand. It began to show up practically. What it meant practically for me was finding a community where there were others who could count it for joy for me. It looked like building my foundation on the rock. You see, the wise man, he didn't have a guide, the wise man who built his house on the rock, he didn't have a guidebook telling him to build his house on the rock. He used the wisdom that God had given him to build his house on the rock. And ladies, you have been given the wisdom you need to build your house on the rock. On a firm foundation that will not waste away. Standing, hyperstanding looked like finding a church and a Bible study where I could explore my faith and what I believe and test it for its genuineness. So what does hyperstand look like for you? Is there a place where you need to hyperstand? You know, in the years following my divorce, I could not get enough of Jesus. I was going to two churches and three Bible studies. And I think I misunderstood the hyper part of hyperstand. But I will tell you, it was because once I began to see what counting it all joy looked like, once I begin to see why David prayed that prayer, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, I couldn't get enough. And so it can start to feel like, Lord, I can't do this. It can start to feel like I have to ask for wisdom, I have to count it all joy. There are so many things I have to do. Genuine faith is hard. Genuine faith perseveres because there is one who went before you and persevered. There is one who went before you who hyper stood, who who took hell on earth, who persevered in his suffering so that you could persevere and receive maturity and completion. There is one who hung on the cross who looked to his future and counted it all joy because he knew what was coming. And ladies, he wore the crown of thorns so that you can someday wear the crown of life. Genuine faith perseveres because we have a savior who persevered. Genuine faith, either we trust him we don't. So do you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that um, you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't done already. Thank you for how you made a way and how you knew that we could count it all joy. You knew that we would be transformed by your wisdom And that you would give us the motivation and the power to stand when it feels like we can't even hang on. So Lord, thank you. And help us keep our eyes on you. In the name of your Son who made the way. Amen.